right, brace yourself. We've got the new and better podcast, episode 12, coming. Here's the tease. But the question is, which, which covenant are you living like you're under? Which covenant are you thinking like you're under? Because most of us, from well-meaning people throughout our entire Christian lives, have told us to think like we're still in a suzerain vassal covenant arrangement. Congratulations. Through the powerful providence of a benevolent benefactor, you've stumbled onto this delicious digital booyah base. Hosted by yours truly, hipster grandfather, David A. Holland. Here, we explore the too-good-to-be-true, poorly understood, badly neglected realities of what Jesus actually launched 2,000 years ago. A new covenant. A better covenant based on better promises. So, Check your religion at the door, grab a beverage, grab a Bible, strap in, gird your loins. This is the New and Better Podcast. In many cases in in the ancient Near East, where there would be a really, really strong, powerful king, he would go and conquer neighboring nations and just wipe them out and absorb those nations into his own nation. And in those cases, you'd kill the king, you'd kill all the king's family. There were lots of ways to to basically expand your empire by essentially trampling neighboring countries under your feet and absorbing them into your empire. But there ultimately becomes a limit to, to the amount of that you can do. Because once you absorb that country, you've got to manage it. You've got to manage the population. They'll, you'll have to deal with frequent uprisings, and you have to put those uprisings down. So a lot of these ancient Near Eastern kings realized that, especially on the periphery of their empire, there was a smarter way to do this. Once you had the ability to squash this neighboring little king like a bug, and you knew that, and he knew that, what you could do is you could go to him and say, you know... You know I could squash you like a bug, but here's what, I'd want to have to do that. Here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set up, you're going to become my vassal, and I'm going to become your suzerain. And as your suzerain, uh, basically what you're going to do is you're going to pledge loyalty to me. You are going to pay me tribute every year out of your treasuries, out of your, out of your tax revenues, or however you gather wealth as a king in a kingdom in your place, you're going to pay me a significant percentage of that every year. And if, I ever, if, if I'm attacked, uh, you're going to give me access to some of your armies uh, and some of your soldiers to be a part of my army to fight. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep you from being attacked. I'm going to promise that basically by being my vassal, I'm going to keep you from being attacked by one of these other guys. Because throughout most of ancient history, Egyptian empire and either an Assyrian or a Persian empire and a northern empire like the Hittites were constantly vying for dominance in that part of the world and and would would push each other back. And there was always, even when the Assyrians were dominant, the Egyptians were always looking to make a comeback and rise. Or when the Egyptians were dominant, the Hittites or the Persians or the Medes or whoever, they were looking basically for some weakness when when Egypt was strong to push them back and push them out. So, and Israel, ancient Israel, always found itself in the middle of that. Three-way pushing tug of war for empire. 
So what, what arose at this time was, was this uh, suzerain vassal treaty arrangement. And so it, it, it bought you some protection. It, first of all, it bought you from protection from the giant king who could squash you like a bug. And secondly, it bought you some protection from some of these others, but at a high cost. What it cost you was your sovereignty, your autonomy, and your pride. You basically had to, you know, you were going to bring a, a tribute every year and everybody knew, including your people would know that you weren't really the guy because there was, but a, a, a lot of people would go along with that because they didn't want their country to be overrun. So there's a couple of places in scripture I just want to point you to and join me there in your Bible. First of all, if you look in, look at 2 Kings 16. If you look at verse 5 in 2 Kings 16, then Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel. Keep in mind, at this point, Israel has divided into two kingdoms. Northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. Israel was always much, much more idolatrous, much, much more prone to, to drift into paganism and idolatry. Northern Kingdom was the ones who had Ahab and, and Jezebel and all those guys. Uh, so that's what it's talking about. The, the, the little king of the little king of Syria, who was a minor king, and the little king of Northern Kingdom Israel, who was a minor king, uh, got together and said, you know, um, let's make war on Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And then, so Ahaz, who's the king of Judah, sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. Now, we just saw the carving from the black obelisk, which was Tiglath-Pileser III. This is not necessarily the third. This is probably the first or the second. And they went to him and, and he said, I am your servant and your son. One name that... that Hebrew word translated servant there is the word that they would use in ancient Semitic languages to describe a vassal. So he's basically going to this giant king because he's got two little kings trying to attack him. And he goes to the big king of Assyria and says, I want to be your vassal, is what he's saying here. I want you to be my suzerain. And so he says that, and he, and he says, I'm your son. That's another interesting thing about the ancient, and, and they, they dig them up all the time. You can't stick a, you can't stick a shovel in the ground in, in Syria or uh, Iraq without digging up one of these clay tablets that has one of these suzerain covenant treaty documents on it. There's thousands of them in existence, and there's whole books been written about the fact that the, this Near Eastern model of, of the suzerain vassal treaty. So basically, Ahaz, the king of Judah, comes to him and says, I want to be your vassal. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present or tribute to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him and the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried its people captive. So here's an example right out of your Bible of this suzerain vassal thing happening in, in the biblical narrative. If you look over a chapter at 2 Kings 17, we see it again. Shalman, I'm in the New King James. Uh, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea, who's the new king of, his, of Judah, became his vassal 
and paid him tribute money. So again, here's an example in the, in the Old Testament of this suzerain vassal dynamic. Let me show you one more, 2 Kings chapter 24. I'm going somewhere with this. This is fascinating history, I know. Getting to 24. 2 Kings 24, verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, so at some point, you know, Babylon and Assyria were vying for dominance in that part of the world. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. So here, once again, we have another king of Judah becoming a vassal of a foreign suzerain, a foreign powerful king. One of the things about this, and, and if you just read all of these, the, the, the prophets that were contemporaneous to these events, it's one of the things that got the northern kingdom carried off into captivity, uh, ultimately by the Assyrians, was the fact that God had specifically told them when God made covenant with the, the Israelite tribes, he, what he created in that covenant with them that he ratified through the covenant mediator Moses at Mount Sinai was a suzerain covenant treaty with the people of Israel. This very kind of model that they've dug up on these clay tablets and have been written on these obelisks, everything in that mosaic covenantal unfolding as God unfolded it fits the model and the pattern of a suzerain vassal treaty. And there have been Volumes of books written about the fact that much of these, the discourses of, of what God told Moses to tell the, the Israelites in the book of Exodus, and the entire actual book of Deuteronomy itself fits the, a pattern of the suzerain vassal covenant treaty. Because basically what was God was doing to create a people, the people that could endure long enough for him to get the Messiah into the world, required, especially where they were positioned in, in, in the world for his divine purposes. But basically, God was saying, I want to be your suzerain. Oh, there's one other thing uh, that I mentioned, because one of, these, one of these biblical passages where whoever it was went to the, went, went to the emperor and said, I want, I want to pay you tribute. I, make me your vassal. I am your son. There was a point I was going to make about that. One of the things about the language of all of these ancient suzerain vassal treaties is that frequently, especially if it was if it was not a super hostile, it was still going to be a suzerain vassal arrangement, but it was not super hostile. The person who was the vassal would be described as either the wife or the son in a relationship, and the suzerain, the powerful one, was either the husband or the father. And frequently you see that husband-father language in these ancient documents. And so basically when this, the big powerful king would go and say, okay, I'm going to be a husband to you and you're going to be like a wife to me. Now keep in mind, that is, that's ancient times where basically a wife was property. A husband was free to basically do whatever he wanted to do with his wife. You know, it's, it, it's not an accurate thing to project our modern Christian Western civilization view of husband-wife equality into that description. It's a very different dynamic that we're talking about if a suzerain said, I'm going to make you my wife or I'm going to make you my son. So that's why when that king of Israel, that king of Judah, went to him and said, I want to be your vassal. Here's my first tribute payment. I want to be your son. He was using the language of ancient Near Eastern vassal suzerain arrangements. 
Well, that's exactly what, what God did when he tried, wanted to call a people. I think for very practical reasons. It's, it, was, it was a model that they would understand. Uh, there wasn't anybody in that world at that time that didn't understand the dynamic of a suzerain-vassal arrangement. Second of all, who's the mediator of this covenant? Who's God using to mediate it and bring it into existence? Moses. Moses is the mediator of this covenant. Where did Moses grow up? In Egypt, as a prince of Egypt. Moses had seen suzerain-vassal covenant arrangements cut surely dozens of times or scores of times as he was growing up. And as a prince of Egypt, he would have been intimately acquainted with the, the dynamics of that kind of covenantal treaty or arrangement. So it doesn't surprise me at all to learn that God used this model to form a people, a covenant people, that at least some remnant of it, a fragment of it, could survive through 1,500 years of crazy history long enough for the time, everything to be modeled and forerunnered and decreed and prophesied and, and, and modeled out so that the Messiah, the second Adam, could come into the world. But that suzerain-vassal treaty covenant arrangement was not the only kind of covenantal arrangement in place in the ancient Near East. There was another kind of covenant arrangement, and it was basically a covenant between two peers, between two relative equals. And it might be two, two heads of Bedouin tribal families, or it might be you know, the heads of two little city-states, or it could be two kings of comparable, of comparable power. But they would often enter into a basically a peer-to-peer -peer covenant relationship. And that peer-to-peer -peer covenant relationship would, would be more like this. You know, we're stronger together than we are separately. We kind of need each other. So let's make a covenant. As a matter of fact, I've got a son. You've got a daughter. Let's have your daughter marry my son. Um, that might be part of that arrangement. But that peer-to-peer that -peer covenantal arrangement would basically be the kind of... And I, I've, I've described this every time I've ever done a wedding. And when I, especially when I get to the ring part of the ceremony, because when two peers would come together in a peer-to-peer -peer covenant relationship, they would basically say, okay, we are bonding ourselves together as one. And so if you have a need, I'll consider that my need. And if I have a need, you'll consider that to be your need. If I'm attacked, you'll consider it an attack on you and vice versa. What I have is available to you. What you have is going to be available to me. And we, we will, in this solemn bloodletting, we'll intermix our blood. We'll, cut, we'll, we'll literally cut covenants so that our blood will intermix so that like we're, the, we're all of one family. And that was a classic peer-to-peer -peer type of covenant arrangement. We see that kind of covenant arrangement in the Old Testament too. When God went to create, basically, he was going to create the person who would create the people who would become the seed pod for the Messiah, he called Abraham. And when he was going to enter into a covenant relationship with Abraham, he had Abraham set up a covenant-cutting ceremony. One of those covenant-cutting ceremonies in the Old Testament, or in, in ancient times, would be you take an animal or several animals and cut them in half lengthwise, separate the pieces so you create a little alleyway in between those pieces with blood soaking into the ground. And then the two parties would walk between those, two, those animal parts through that passageway. And basically, by, by saying that, by walking through those pieces, they were saying, may what has happened to these animals happen to me if I ever violate 
this covenant, if I'm ever unfaithful to it. And so what did God do when he decided to covenant with Abraham, for Abram? He had Abram set up that very, very kind of peer-to-peer covenant relationship. And then at that point, in Abraham's mind, should have happened was God would have appeared and the together, the two of them would have walked through those animal parts or pieces together. But God puts Abraham to sleep. And and then in a vision, in a dream, Abraham sees what, hap- what, what happened. And he sees basically a proxy for God, a smoking lamp or a torch or whatever. I can't remember the other thing. But a proxy for him and a proxy for God passing through the, those pieces. The reason is that basically there was no way Abram could literally enter into a peer-to-peer relationship with God. Because they weren't peers. So basically God provided a proxy for Abram, and and God is basically saying, I'm going to take both sides of this covenant. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to basically take your side and my side, because you've demonstrated you're a person of faith. And so God established in the earth the Abrahamic covenant, which was essentially it's a peer to peer with God taking both sides, and forerunnering something that was going to happen much, much later. Are you still with me? Yes. Mm-hmm. One, the the vassal suzerain arrangement makes the weaker party a servant or an immature son or wife with with little power with few rights and then the other one makes essentially makes you a brother uh, to, to the person that you're entering into it makes you a family member hey uh, loads of good stuff up ahead and your gateway to that yummy goodness is a Just a little sidebar that we call page two. Hey, just real quickly here, I want to make you aware of a few other places where you can find my content online. One is my YouTube channel, where you'll find not only the video version of the podcast, but uh, other short form content as well. And if you prefer the written word, as I do, you'll want to check out my blog over at davidaholland.com. I've been writing there since... 2007. That's right. You'll find 16 plus years worth of gold over there. That's davidaholland.com. Got to get that A in there. So go check it out. And while you're there, leave an email address so I can alert you when I have new stuff coming out or a special event you may want to know about. Now, back to your regularly scheduled program. So now, with all that in mind, I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, because in Jeremiah 31, and we've already seen that the Mosaic covenant, the law, the Levitical law, and all of that is modeled after the the suzerain vassal model of the ancient Near East. And then in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, there's a longer passage there that's relevant, but we'll just get down to the meat of it in verse 31, where Jeremiah prophesies, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, by the way, although I was a husband to them. This is basically, this is that ancient suzerain vassal treaty language here. Uh, When he's talking about husband, basically being a husband, to them. Not only is is he saying that that covenant has been broken, 
but he's saying that a new covenant is coming that will not be like that covenant. You know, it's not only, not only is this thing going to replace it, the thing that replaces it is going to be a different kind of covenant. Now, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. One of the most important principles of Bible interpretation is letting, the, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Especially if we, if, we get to a new, if we get to the New Covenant, and the New Covenant Scripture is telling you what an Old Testament Scripture meant, but you, we have to believe it. We, we have to accept it. The, when, when people, uh, the writer like Paul or, or Peter, anointed by the Holy Spirit, basically interpret an Old Testament Scripture for us, we really should take their word for it. Uh, let, let the new, the new Scriptures interpret the Old. So in Hebrews chapter 8, it's talking a lot about this new covenant. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 6 here, but now he, talking about Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. Moses was the mediator of the first covenant. Jesus is the new mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for sought for a second. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to quote that entire Jeremiah 31 passage of Scripture that we just read. Behold, the days are coming. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So basically, the entire book of Hebrews is written to Christians, people who have accepted Jesus Christ, people who have come into the new covenant, people who have been born again. And here we have the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament telling us the interpretation of Jeremiah 31 that the new covenant that Jesus established through his blood as the mediator is the fulfillment of that Jeremiah 31 promise of a new covenant, but not only a new covenant, but a better kind of covenant. Now, let me take you to Galatians chapter 4, where Paul's talking about it. As you know, almost the entire book of Galatians is Paul scolding the church at Galatia for starting to get pulled back into that Mosaic Covenant way of thinking. Uh, there were certain people who were coming to the church, and there were people, basically people who had been fed, fanned out all over, the, all over the Roman world. Wherever churches had been planted, they'd been sent out to try to pull them back to, certain, to some one extent or another, back into the Mosaic way of thinking, that vassal-suzerain, suzerain-vassal uh, arrangement. And Paul's not having it. So we get to, uh, down here to verse... Actually, let me go to the TPT. I'm going to go to the uh, Passion Translation on that. Do you want to go back to living strictly by the law? Haven't you ever listened to what the law really says? Have you forgotten that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave girl and one by the free woman? Ishmael, the son of the slave girl, was a child of the natural realm. But Isaac, the son of the free woman, was born supernaturally by the Spirit, a child of the promise of God. These two women and their sons express an allegory and become symbols of two covenants. The first covenant was born on Mount Sinai, birthing children into slavery, children born to Hagar. So basically, Paul here is explicitly stating that in the, in this, in the metaphor of the two women, Hagar and Sarah, the people who basically came into relationship with God through that Mosaic covenant, that suzerain-vassal treaty, were essentially slaves in that covenant. They were birthing children into slavery, 
children born to Hagar, for Hagar represents the law given at Mount Sinai in Arabia. The Hagar metaphor corresponds to the earthly Jerusalem of today who are currently in bondage. In contrast, there is a heavenly Jerusalem above us, which is our true mother. She is the free woman birthing children into freedom. For it is written, and then he quotes, uh, he quotes scripture, which is Isaiah 54. Dear friends, just like Isaac, we are now true children who inherit the kingdom promises. And just as the son of the natural world at that time harassed the son born of power of the Holy Spirit, so it is today there are people who are trying to pull you back into that Mosaic covenant. They're harassing you now, Paul was writing uh, at this time. He says, it's now so obvious. We are not children of the slave woman. We are sons of the free woman, sons of grace. So, all of that is preface and set up for this thought, for this question. Clearly, every person here and every person listening to my voice and who will listen to my voice through this recording is a born-again believer. You are in this new and better covenant. But the question is, which, which covenant are you living like you're under? Which covenant are you thinking like you're under? Because most of us, from well-meaning people throughout our entire Christian lives, have told us to think like we're still in a suzerain vassal covenant arrangement, of, of, which is built on fear, which is built on uh, fear of consequences, uh, fear of punishment. Uh, that was, that's the whole nature of the, of the suzerain vassal arrangement treaty. And it was very necessary for the Mosaic Covenant because that type of hard harshness was necessary to do to fight the battle and to win the war of getting Jesus into the world. It was the absolutely the appropriate form of covenant. But what Jesus established in it with his own blood, like the Abrahamic covenant, is a peer-to-peer with with just like with Abraham, putting us to sleep and Jesus taking our part. Jesus became one of us and basically made a covenant with God through his own blood so that we're in, we're in a peer-to-peer covenant arrangement with God of the, with the God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ, who is in us and we are in him. That's the kind of relationship we're in with God, who now says to us, whatever you need and I have it, you've got it. Uh, and we say to him, God, if there's anything that you need, it's all yours. I'm living, I'm, I'm, everything I have, I'm living with an open hand before you. Because in Jesus, we're in covenant together. And it's not, it, it's not built upon fear and fear of consequences. So what is your mindset or mode as you just live with God day after day? Are you living with him and in him in this mindset which I did and still fall, fall, find myself falling back into from time to time, this mindset that is more like that suzerain vassal arrangement than that peer-to-peer arrangement. Are, are we living in the mindset that we're servants or that we're sons, sons and daughters? The, pro, the, the, the parable of the prodigal son is an interesting one when you look at it from this perspective because neither son had a clear understanding of their position with the father. You know, one of them, after he had basically abandoned his, he thought he'd abandoned his inheritance and spent it all. And so thought there, there is no inheritance in the father's house for me. There is no seat inside the father's house for me because I've, I've violated that, that, that covenant. And yet he comes back and he finds out that there is a seat at the father's house for him.
that God puts the robe of sonship and the ring of sonship on, on him and kills a fatted calf, sacrifices a fatted calf, and then basically brings him and sets him his pl- as place at the, at the Father's table, irrespective of everything that he'd done, irrespective of his behavior, irrespective of his disloyalty, irrespective of his crazy, crazy destructive behavior, that seat at the table was still there for, the, for him and his brother who was sitting outside grumbling about all of that, didn't understand his position with the father either. That, it, he, that he's, he's a true son with a place at the table, and yet his language that Jesus put in his mouth describes somebody who doesn't understand that they're not earning or meriting or deserving <laughs> that place at the table. That that place belongs to them because of whose they are because of that connection, that relationship. And yet it's so easy for us to, to slip back into, to slip back into that way of thinking. Now, I'm, I'm going to talk to you about something and it's a, it's a little bit of a sensitive subject and I don't want to blow anyone's minds, but some of you have already connected these dots in, in your head, either while, while I taught this tonight or when, when I taught it before. But one of, one of the things when God established the Mosaic Covenant, and set it up as a classic, by-the-book, suzerain-vassal treaty, he set up a tribute arrangement in that. What was that tribute arrangement that he set up? It's the tithe. Basically, if you, if, you, if you had a vassal, that vassal had to bring you a tribute every year to reaffirm that you are still the vassal to that suzerain. And God set that very thing up. As a reminder, I am your suzerain. And that's why they were expressly forbidden not to go down to Egypt for horses, God told uh, Solomon, also told Moses. You're not, you're not to make a vassal suzerain arrangement with any other ruler because you are my vassal, Israel. Your tribute belongs to me. You're paying tribute to another emperor or to another king because you're afraid of them is saying that you think that king is more powerful than I am. And so that tithe strictly under the, under the Levitical law was basically the tribute piece of the suzerain vassal treaty. Our arrangement with God is not a suzerain vassal arrangement. It is a peer-to-peer covenant. We, we're living in an arrangement where we don't move a decimal place uh, in order to know how much to give or when to give or where to give. We listen to the Spirit of God and we give generously because that's who we are. In Malachi 3.10, which every one of us who have ever heard a sermon about tithing takes us to Malachi 3.10, which is a covenant lawsuit or a covenant indictment against the Levites in particular. Against the, it's against Israel in, in, in general, but specifically against the Levites uh, for basically being, for violating the the everything that God had told the Levites to do and everything that he told them to be. And and then in verse 3, he says, you've robbed me of tithes. You've robbed me of tribute. Therefore, just like any good, decent vassal suzerain arrangement, I'm not going to keep your enemies off of you. I'm not going to rebuke the devourer on your behalf because you're in violation of this suzerain vassal arrangement. And now we have almost 2,000 years of believers frequently being told that if you don't move a decimal point and give to your local church, 
that you are going to be subject. God, God is going to let the devil attack you. That God is going to turn, you know, basically you're not, you're not going to enjoy his protection if you don't do that. And that's not true. That's not true. The tithe is a, is a in, the, in the Melchizedekian uh, sense where uh, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth and then Jesus is the fulfillment of that role of the priest of, of, in the role of Melchizedek. There's absolutely a principle there and it's the principle of first fruits. The principle of first fruits runs all through the Bible. So it's absolutely right and spiritually appropriate when, as we increase, to bring the first of that to God and say, where do you want me to give this? Who do you want me to bless with this? But not doing that does not expose you to attack from the enemy. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. Proverbs chapter 3 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your vats will overflow with plenty, and your, uh, your barns will overflow with plenty, and your, your vats will be filled with new wine. The principle of generosity and the principle of first fruits is absolutely bi biblical, and it's all through the Bible. But the moment preachers with bills to pay and budgets to meet start telling people, and, I, and I, I feel very passionately about this. Start pointing people to Malachi 3.10 and say, if you don't do it, and if you don't do it right, if it's not the first, and if it's not given to this particular place, the storehouse, and I'm going, and I'm going to define the storehouse in such a way so that it's got to come here, and uh, uh, it's got to be a tenth, and it's got to be a tenth on the gross, not the net. Uh, and if you don't do that, you, God's going to get it another way. How many times have you been told, well, if you, know, if you don't give it to God, He's going to get it some other way. Your stuff's going to start breaking down. That is not the covenant you're living under. The, you're under a new covenant, and it's a different kind of covenant. And Jesus has stepped into your place to walk through those pieces. And he is basically your performance of everything that is required to benefit from every single promise of God, including his protection. You can take fear off the table, take fear out of the equation, and live a generous, abundant life bringing first fruits to God and giving wherever he says to give and living with an open hand where, you, where you're basically saying, God, there isn't anything that I have that is not at your disposal. You prompt me, you tell me, I'll give it. That's the new covenant way to live. Not living in fear that, it, that God's going to let the devil off the leash and attack us if we don't move that decimal point and bring it right to the place we're supposed to bring it when we're supposed to bring it. That is not the good news. There's no good news in that. And even if you just miss God completely and don't give what you're supposed to give, when you're supposed to give, it doesn't mean you qualify one micro, micro atomic particle less for every promise that's in God's word. Because your performance is, is in Jesus. Jesus performed for you. He met everything for you. So what we live as we were sons of the free woman, we live, in, we live in freedom, and we qualify for everything, and we get better at responding to what the Holy Spirit's telling us to do. We get better as we go as be, of being generous. We get better as we go. What the Holy Spirit tells you to give, where He tells you to give it, 
when he tells you to give it, and you'll, you'll be just fine. You'll, you'll be just fine. And as we become ever more generous people, we can, ha- we can have a confident expectation of blessing. Okay, neighbor. Before we bring this rodeo to an end today, let's do page three. How about I share a little insight about how you can take a deeper dive into all I have on offer for you. When you can, sashay on over to davidaholland.com. Now, you got to get that A in the middle there. That At davidaholland.com, you'll find a smorgasbord of stuff that will help you live the sweet life. That's a life of rest and hope and meaning. So until next time, please remember God is better than you think and you're more loved than you know.